Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. And whether it is the pandemic, the toll of sick and dying, or the unprecedented army of the unemployed, the United States has entered uncharted territory. We speak to activists, including Pam Tawley of San Francisco. I want to be able to talk about the anti-Asian environment that is going on and, and the harassment and the violence and public policy that is targeting our people. But even with a quarter million confirmed cases and more than 6,100 dead, the pandemic has not stopped U.S. capitalism from threatening lives around the globe and here at home. We speak to Professor Gerald Horn and Dr. Margaret Flowers. No matter what happens in this electoral season, we need to be thinking about how we're organizing in our communities to push for what we need and stop this kind of corporate socialism that we have in the United States. All this and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. As of Thursday night, there are about a quarter million known coronavirus cases in the United States and more than 6,100 deaths, while the global number of cases tops 1 million. As the pandemic shuts down businesses, organizations, and social life across the United States, a record 6.6 million Americans filed unemployment claims for the week ending March 28th. Added to previous week's claims, a total of 10.4 million Americans filed for unemployment during the month of March. Heidi Scharholz of the Economic Policy Institute said on Twitter that in her two decades of studying the labor market, she has never seen anything like the spike in unemployment that the U.S. has experienced over the last two weeks. The staggering unemployment numbers were released one day after organizations, including Public Citizen, called for a cancellation of rent or mortgage payments or a rent strike on April 1st. Workers at Amazon and Instacart walked off the job on Monday, demanding better protection measures against the virus, as well as paid sick time and pay, while work sites are closed for disinfection. Christian Smalls, a supervisor who organized the walkout, at the Staten Island, New York, Amazon warehouse, was fired from his job shortly afterward. He told the Jimmy Dore Show on Thursday that Amazon wanted to withhold information from workers about confirmed cases of coronavirus at its facilities. We're regular people. My job description said have a high school diploma and a GED and lift 50 pounds. It didn't say work during a pandemic and put your life on at risk of it didn't say none of that. We didn't sign up for that. You know, that's the medical field. They deserve the. They're the real heroes. Um, we're not protected. The PPE is scarce. It doesn't protect us at all. We don't have no mask. The gloves are not latex. The safety guidelines are not working. And that's what they need to realize. It's not no secret. The buildings all across the nation right now with a case, multiple cases. Amazon released a statement saying that Smalls was fired because he violated social distance rules. But New York officials reeling at the epicenter of this outbreak 
are investigating whether Smalls was fired because of his protest of work conditions. At the same time, that $2.2 trillion stimulus package, which economists say is really worth a lot more for big corporations, is looking worse and worse. This week, the Treasury Department confirmed that it could take weeks or months for many Americans to receive the one-time payment of up to $1,200 promised in the legislation. Treasury Secretary and former Goldman Sachs executive Steve Mnuchin bristled at the extended timelines reported by news organizations and said that the first checks will be distributed beginning the week of April 13th to those who have a direct deposit account with the Internal Revenue Service. Paper checks mailed to everyone else will take much longer. Not only will payments to families be delayed, this week Senate leader Mitch McConnell told right-wing talk show host Hugh Hewitt that he is opposed to another round of stimulus that will directly benefit families. I'm not going to allow this to be an opportunity for the Democrats uh, to achieve unrelated policy items that they would not otherwise be able to pass. Meanwhile, the overwhelming crisis here at home is not stopping Washington from continuing to ratchet up conflicts and attacks on other countries. After the U.S. Justice Department issued a so-called drug trafficking charge against Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro on March 26th, this week Secretary of State Mike Pompeo released a so-called Democratic Transition Plan demanding the ouster of Maduro in exchange for a five-person Council of State. And he threatened even more sanctions if Venezuela does not comply. Venezuelans dismissed the plan, saying that the Bolivarian Revolution will never be ruled by another country. In support of Venezuela and Iran, and in opposition to the illegal sanctions against them, the National Lawyers Guild and other legal groups and hundreds of lawyers sent a a letter this week to Mike Pompeo and the Trump administration demanding an end to sanctions on those countries and categorizing those sanctions as a crime against humanity. As the sanctions interfere with the ability of both countries to secure life-saving medicines and equipment to fight the deadly coronavirus. International solidarity during the pandemic was also demonstrated this week toward the 2 million Palestinians living under a genocidal air and sea blockade in Gaza under Israeli apartheid. Chantel James has more. With activists continuing efforts online in light of social distancing, Jewish Voice for Peace hosted a virtual rally called End the Gaza Blockade on Monday. Speakers included Palestinian activists from across three continents. They laid out the crisis Gaza faces under the threat of coronavirus and the ways the pandemic will be worsened due to the effects of the current blockade on Gaza, which is the third most densely populated polity in the world. Those gathered called for an immediate end to the blockade and provided ways attendees can make their voices heard on this important issue. Isam Adwan spoke live from Gaza as he gave his remarks. As a conclusion of 14 years imprisonment with intentional policy to deteriorate the healthcare system, the economic situation, the increasing poverty rate and employment, this sums up the, the, the mentality of the people of how they responded. And they have been dying in so many different ways, not during the wars or during the protests of the Great March of Return, but they have been dying because of the lack of food, they have been dying because of the unemployment rate, they have been dying because of the health care is deteriorating. 
So people are too desperate to feel that they cannot change anything and they have absolutely no hand in defining their death and they have no hand in defining their future. This has resulted that the people feel that they are not afraid of death. So before the submission of the two cases and after the submission of the two cases, people responded in a really normal way that they don't fear dying, they don't fear that this pandemic virus is affecting their lives, gatherings, falling in the streets, going to the market, shopping and doing, you know, just normal activities. We are trying to affect this this mentality of the people throughout, you know, uh, just spreading precaution steps or talking to people that uh, the, if the occupation did not kill them, the virus is doing that in a way or another. So throughout these works, we are trying to tell the people that this is no joke and this is not Israel, this is not bombing, this is not a normal case that we're used to for the past years. This is totally something different. Two millions of people living in a 365 square kilometers with absolutely in Rafah of estimated population 250,000 of people with absolutely no central hospital. In Gaza, the Shifa hospital has a capacity of 500 beds, while the, the, the population of Gaza itself is more than half a million. So we are in a prick of a disaster if we did not act out, if we did not raise our voices now. It would be too late to do that. In addition to inviting participants to create their own protest signs for display, organizers encouraged the signing of a petition to demand that Congress tell Israel to end the blockade of Gaza. You can add your name too at www.tinyurl.com slash end the Gaza blockade. From Northeast DC, this is Chantal James. Back in the U.S., a petition was filed on Wednesday by the Natural Resources Defense Council and a coalition of environmental justice, climate justice, and public interest groups calling on the Environmental Protection Agency to issue an emergency rule protecting public health in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. The petition says that the recent EPA directive encouraging industries to stop monitoring and reporting pollution creates a serious and immediate risk to people and communities especially those overburdened by air and water pollution. Gina McCarthy, president and CEO of the Natural Resources Defense Council, called the directive a cruel paradox. She said, quote, The EPA is using an unprecedented public health crisis to justify allowing polluters to put our health at even greater risk at a time when we most need their protection. That's especially true for communities of color, who disproportionately live with higher levels of pollution close to their homes, and it's especially egregious because these same communities face higher risk from COVID-19 as a result of pollution-related heart and lung problems. This agency is abandoning its responsibility to protect our health. It's time for EPA to do its job and stop doing polluters' dirty work, end quote. On the grounds, environmental justice producer Michelle Roberts recently spoke to Larry Lambert, a member of Delaware Concerned Residents, who listed the myriad of battles he faces with polluters in that state. We can just go up the state of Delaware and just list off the issues that we're having, whether it's the Crota ethylene oxide plant in Newcastle, whether it's the Wayland slag plant in Southbridge, whether it's the Sunoco plant dumping toxins in Claymont, where I live, 
you know, it's just these cumulative health impacts that we're dealing with. We can't continue to live like this. This is not sustainable. Lambert and Michelle were both on hand in D.C. when the proposed Environmental Justice for All Act was introduced by Representatives Raul Grijalva and Donald McEachin. The proposed law would protect communities across the country from polluters. And in D.C. this week, district officials are appealing to members of Congress to correct the stimulus allocation to the District of Columbia, which was designated as a territory like Guam in the legislation and given $700 million less than other states with smaller populations or that pay far less to the federal government than the District of Columbia. Also in D.C., more than a third of homebound D.C. public school students cannot access their lessons on a computer and received an assist on TV. Lydia Curtis has more. In order to meet the needs of the 35% of D.C. public school students who do not have laptops or Wi-Fi in their homes, the Washington Teachers Union has entered into a creative and innovative agreement with a local television station to air lessons for remote learning. Starting this week on Monday, March 30th, students could tune into WDCA, which is a part of the Fox 5 network. Additionally, WUSA 9 is advertising the programming, which airs from 10 to 10.30 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Washington Teachers Union is hitting the streets to get the word out. Parents and students who are interested in this great learning opportunity, just tune your television dial to WDCA at 10 a.m. This is Lydia Curtis for On the Ground. On the Ground contributor Lydia Curtis is also one of the many people in the DMV volunteering in community-operated mutual aid efforts, and she promises to bring us more about that in the coming weeks. Finally, in culture and media, the organization Free Press has filed an, an emergency petition for inquiry with the Federal Communications Commission, calling on the agency to investigate the spread of false COVID-19 information via broadcast outlets across the United States. The petition points to disinformation being aired during the Trump administration's daily press briefings, including statements by President Trump that may have led to the death of an Arizona man. The petition also calls out disinformation that broadcast radio personalities are spreading. Free Press asks the agency to immediately issue an emergency policy statement or enforcement guidance recommending that broadcasters prominently disclose when information they air is false or scientifically suspect. And finally, finally, we have more movies to recommend that you can stream at home. Professor Gerald Horn recommends Contagion which is a top pick on Rotten Tomatoes. Similarly, he recommends the drama Pandemic starring Faye Dunaway. I recommend Just Mercy with Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx telling the real story of lawyer Brian Stevenson. Here is the trailer for Just Mercy. The first time I visited death row, I wasn't expecting to meet somebody the same age as me. From a neighborhood just like ours. Could have been me, mama. But what you're doing is going to make a lot of people upset. You always taught me to fight for the people who need the help most. Your life is still meaningful, and I'm going to do everything possible to keep them from taking it. You only know what you're into down here in Alabama when you're guilty from the moment you're born. God! Mr. McMillan, 
We're done here. Mr. McMillan, please. I was just about to give up when I got a call from a Harvard lawyer looking to start a legal center for inmates on death row. I was in before he even offered me the job. You the lawyer? Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for driving all the way out here. Most lawyers barely make time to call. I can't believe you talked to all my people and said you're going to fight for me. I did. It mean a lot. If you go digging in those wounds, you're going to be making a lot of people very unhappy. When people care about a thing that much, they'll do anything to get what they want. When I first learned about all this, it was like looking at a river full of drowning people and not having any way of helping them. That was the trailer for the movie Just Mercy, available on streaming platforms. And those are our headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And as we go to broadcast, there are about a quarter million coronavirus cases confirmed in the United States and more than 6,100 deaths, while the global number of cases tops 1 million. As the pandemic has shut down businesses, organizations, and social life across the country, a record 6.6 million Americans filed unemployment claims for the week ending March 28th. With me to discuss the virus in the United States and the response from Washington is Dr. Margaret Flowers, a pediatrician and activist for universal health care who is co-chair of the Green Party of the United States. Welcome back to the show, Margaret. Thank you, Esther. Well, I wanted to follow up our last interview because we spent a lot of time talking about the lack of testing and how testing was a primary means by which countries like China, South Korea, and I I guess Singapore were able to get a head start on the virus and get it under control. But here we are in April now, and we don't really have wide-scale testing in the United States. So what's your reaction to what has been the response by the federal government or just in the United States in general to the crisis since we last spoke? Right. I mean, what we're seeing is a complete failure of leadership from the national government on this issue. And, you know, a real cornerstone of basic public health and the way that other countries controlled this was by quickly instituting protocols, 
that would test people who were suspected of having COVID-19. And then if they tested positive, you know, having them isolate until their test results were out. If they were tested positive, then quarantining them, identifying their contacts and testing them. So a very kind of methodical approach to identifying who has the virus and isolating them. But in the United States, it's even at this date, it's still hard for people to get tested. It's really only people who are in the hospital who are sick. And so even though our numbers are very high, I imagine that in reality, the numbers are even higher than this. And it's this, you know, failure to take a real methodological approach that has led to us having to take these really drastic measures of encouraging everybody to isolate just to try to prevent it. So it's, you know, it's having a real toll on people, um, particularly in low-income communities, who are finding it difficult to get out and, you know, get food and to afford food. There's price gouging going on. So it's just, and, you know, we're, I mean, we could go on and on. There's a real lack from the, you know, federal government of coordination and getting supplies to where they need to be. We learned from an article in The Intercept that as late as March 17th, the United States was allowing corporations that make ventilators and other equipment needed to use in this pandemic to sell it to foreign countries and basically shipping it out of our country while our own healthcare workers are struggling, you know, to get protected in this crisis. Right, exactly. So another way of looking at uh, how it's being handled here versus in, in China, for example, is the fact that if the same types of protocols had been put in place, Perhaps we would not have a country, we would not have a countrywide lockdown of business and, and everything because uh, China didn't have to do that. They were able right. to isolate it in one place and uh, minimize the kind of countrywide economic lockdown, what I think Krugman is calling it an economic coma uh, that is really devastating people on an individual basis in terms of their work and their being able to take care of their families. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the China took the approach of, you know, taking the most strict measures in areas that were hardest hit, but they, you know, they really varied their protocol based on, you know, what the issue was or what the situation was in each of the provinces here in the United States, because there's a lack of national leadership, different states are doing different things really based on ideology more than what is necessary. And so we saw, you know, the state of Florida very reluctantly coming to a, in taking measures. And, and because of that, and because it coincided with spring break, you know, people went to Florida for their spring break and then came, you know, but were infected there and carried it all over the country. And yeah, exactly. You know, as you said, they were able to kind of do this in a, in a scientific way that only really shut down the areas of the economy and the areas of the country that needed it. So two things that I heard, you know, just watching TV <laughs> really shocked me this week. One was the governor of, of Georgia saying that he didn't hear until 24 hours ago. And, you know, he was just speaking maybe yesterday on Thursday or Wednesday saying that that he didn't hear. He didn't understand that the virus could be spread through, you know, coughing like through the air. Right. <laughs> that right. um, that it was only and and the other thing that shocked me is the the audio of a telephone call that Trump had with governors where and I'm going to play play the clip for you but where he's giving a different story about the quality and quantity of testing that's happening in the United States. 
The first voice is Montana Governor Steve Bullock, and then there's Trump. Literally, we are one day away if we don't get test kits from the CDC that we wouldn't be able to be tested in Montana. While we're trying to do all the contact tracing, we don't have adequate tests to necessarily do. We don't have the PPC along the way, and we're not finding markets to be able to do that. Okay, so that's Trump Trump talking to governors on the phone, and he's basically saying that he hadn't heard about testing in weeks. And we're talking about testing being kind of like the this baseline fundamental strategy that's really needed. Right, exactly. And I mean, but we haven't seen consistency or accurate reports coming out of the White House throughout this crisis. So it doesn't surprise me that he would say something like that. I mean, we're hearing states that have been promised with getting tests who aren't getting them, states that have requested ventilators that are getting, you know, a tiny proportion of what they're asking for. We're just seeing a total failure at the national level to respond to what the states need. And that has resulted in a situation where states are kind of pitted against each other and these bidding wars out there trying to get the equipment and resources that they need. And, you know, it's, it's really kind of a chaotic situation, which is the opposite of what we need right now. We need, you know, somebody at the federal level who's really looking at the situation, doing the, you know, procuring of what's needed and transporting it to where it's needed. I mean, New York City has resorted to receiving shipments from China and Russia in order to get the supplies they need as they are one of the hardest hit, they are the hardest hit area in the United States, but they're really just kind of the the tip of the wave, other cities, Los Angeles, New Orleans, are going to become a New York City likely in the next few weeks. They're just following behind. Wow. Well, you know, you mentioned these supplies, and so you're referring to the protective supplies that, you know, that's the other shocking thing. And so I don't know if we talked about this before. Like, I had this question about, whether this is ideological, whether, you know, Trump and the people who are around him in the White House are just so committed to this kind of neoliberal market driven response to the crisis that they are going to stick with it, you know, regardless of how many people die or, you know, whether they just they, they cannot conceive of government being the solution on a national federal level. I'm just I'm just wondering. I don't know if we talked about that before. I don't think that we did. And I think, you know, what it really comes down to, because it's, it's, well, Trump, you know, is kind of like an extreme or very kind of open about the problems in the United States. He just kind of, he's out there in your face, you know, all these issues that we've been having for a long time. Trump is just very openly showing them. And this is no different, but we've had, you know, disinvestment in our public health infrastructure, you know, for a long time under other presidents. We've, you know, seen dismantling of our pandemic, you know, response team. And this is despite the fact that there have been warnings that a pandemic is inevitable at some point. And yet we failed to prepare for it. We learned that 
you know, there was an attempt to procure ventilators to have them in store in, in the case of a pandemic, but they weren't required to, to bring them, you know, to produce them until 2022. So it doesn't make any sense why we would wait that far, you know, put it that far out for this type of thing. I think part of it is ideology. Part of it is just that our country has put profits before the health and safety of people for a long time. So I don't know if you also heard the story about the one company that had come up with a ventilator that could, could be produced for like $100 or it would cost $100. And, and this was part of a government project to create a, a less expensive ventilator. And this company was purchased by um, a bigger company, which then proceeded to squash this this lower cost unit because it would interfere, it would compete with their more expensive ventilator. Kind of like the story about who killed the electric car, <laughs> right. you know. And uh, so that was that's another story that's come out this week that's been pretty shocking. And it's really told the story about this long simmering problem of profit before people. If I could quickly comment mm-hmm. on that, I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's just what, how capitalism behaves. And, you know, we saw last week that there was a, a request for the federal government to buy a billion dollars worth of ventilators that hospital, hospitals could use. And after this package, you know, this bill passed by Congress, that's basically giving hundreds of billions of dollars to big industries and investors. One billion dollars was too much to spend on the health of our people. Exactly. Yeah, we had that story last week. So the comparing those numbers was really staggering and very telling. So similarly, you know, the other thing that's happening this week, along with this tremendous health crisis, is the kind of sputtering along of the presidential campaign. And on at least two occasions this week, uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign and advocates for Medicare for all have been attacked by a Democratic Party establishment, and they've been accused of politicizing the pandemic to push the agenda for Medicare for all and really urging him to drop out of the race. So there has been attacks on Twitter and there's also been attacks on The View. I want to play you a clip on how The View television show introduced him. How does presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders answer accusations that he's politicizing the pandemic to push his Medicare for all agenda and that staying in the race could guarantee Trump another term? He's live on The View next. Okay, so that was the intro to Bernie Sanders on The View where he was afterwards treated in a pretty brutal fashion by Whoopi Goldberg, who just basically kept hammering about him about when he's going to drop out. And so all of this is in the context of politics and not really people's health. But as a physician, how are you responding to these attacks on Medicare for all? Well, I think, you know, this is not really a surprise. The establishment as, you know, and the Democratic Party establishment have been opposed to national improved Medicare for all for a long time. They've refused when, you know, the people try to pass resolutions through the Democratic Party and support for it. You know, as long as I've been an advocate for national improved for Medicare for all, people have been pushing that and the party has refused to adopt it. So they're just really looking for any way that they can to, you know, denigrate it, to stop people from fighting for it. So this is not a surprise, but 
what's happening with the COVID-19 crisis is that it's really exposing in a very brutal way the flaws of our healthcare system. And so actually we're seeing support among the people rise for national improved Medicare for all. And this is absolutely the time to be pushing for it. And if, you know, if people are not aware, it is political. It's always going to be political. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the reality. We have a system that is not taking care of people and a majority support for a solution that would. And that's political. Right. Right. So, I do want to ask you about um, kind of some spots outside the United States, because this is a global pandemic. But, you know, as an activist and someone who is active, not only um, in movement politics, but um, in the politics of the Green Party and um, as just a longtime activist, um, what kind of, I mean, it just seems like people who want to do the right thing, people who are progressives, people who are our actives out here feel like we're in a bind again, you know, we're in a bind and that we're looking at this election and the political season and, and people don't, people don't have any, um, you know, you know, what, what is your, what are your thoughts as you look at this political and electoral season right now? And while this tremendous crisis is going on. Right. I think that we have to look at the bigger picture because there's such a tendency in this country and the media really drives that for people to focus on the electoral system as really the avenue for political change in this country. And the reality is that now and in history, political change has come over time by broad movements, mass movements of people pushing for that change. And if we look at you know, what's happening going back to the Occupy movement in 2011, which really put issues on the agenda that weren't there before, issues of, you know, money controlling our politics, of the corruption of profit before the well-being of people and protecting the planet. That has, you know, that has grown. I mean, the reason that Senator Sanders can run for president on these issues is because there's been a change, a shift in the political consciousness, making, you know, that an opening for him. And so what we have right now is a tremendous opportunity because of the economy, the climate crisis, our foreign policy, our health, all of these crises are really coming to a head and that's an opportunity for us to push that dialogue even farther and to push for what we need so absolutely right now I think that no matter what happens in this electoral season we need to be thinking about how we're organizing in our communities to push for what we need and, and we see that happening we see people you know calling on the prison system to release prisoners calling on ICE to stop detaining people putting homeless people out of shelters and into actual apartments or hotel rooms where they can, you know, isolate themselves, mutual aid, you know, helping people to get food and other basic necessities. This is the type of work that we need to keep doing and pushing and really demanding at the local, state, and federal level that we get what we need as people and stop this kind of corporate socialism that we have in the United States. Well, so I'm going to have to leave it on that note. I've been speaking with Dr. Margaret Flowers, a pediatrician and activist for Universal Healthcare, who is co-chair of the Green Party of the United States. Thank you for joining me today, Margaret. Thank you for having me, Esther.
This is Michelle Roberts. I'm on the ground with Pam Cowley out of the historic town and community of Chinatown, San Francisco Bay Area. We are speaking with our dear sister, elder, and friend to just find out what is happening to our beloved cultural community of Chinatown with this impacts of the virus and more. What can we on the ground folks do for our family and friends in Chinatown? Pam, how are you doing, first of all? Welcome. Oh, Michelle, um, thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm, I'm doing well. I am here in my house. Uh, there's three of us. My husband, Ben, uh, he's got diabetes. A young person who is living with us, she has lupus. And for myself, I have asthma. So well, we are not able to leave our house. So to get fresh air, uh, we are very fortunate to have a backyard. Uh, and so we're getting our exercise and fresh air by weeding and planting. And we're just so blessed by having neighbors and friends, especially our neighbors who have gone and bought food for us and just done errands and things. Uh, it's just been incredible. So I'm feeling very blessed uh, for this healing opportunity with you and for the f- friends and neighbors right now. But where I am, want to share is uh, my mom is 94, and she's a, an assisted living and with Alzheimer's and, de- and dementia. And, you know, calling her every day, because we can't see each other, I can't hold her hand. It makes me very sad. And my son today started back at work, and I'm very concerned about him. So on top of, like, everybody else around the world and here being so anxious about this moment, for me, I want to be able to share and thank you to be able to talk about the anti-Asian environment that is going on and and the harassment and the violence and public policy that is targeting our people. Uh, And so I know you walked with me through Chinatown, uh, Michelle, Um, but I, I want to be able to also like frame this in terms of that space of that we call Chinatown uh, is now like national and global. Uh, what we are experiencing with the corona. We're having a common experience in which we are needing to come together to stay strong. Wow. So what are these impacts on the workers there? I know this Chinatown, when you walked me through your community, and that was such a very humbling and endearing experience with you and the young people from the Chinese, Chinese progressive um, association. Progressive mm-hmm. so yes, yes. And it was such a rich and rewarding experience to learn and experience the history there. That being said, what is now the, the now with this latest pandemic, what are the impacts 
on the economic impacts on the workers today. I know you've gone through a history of of struggle and getting to that of being unionized and being able mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. uh, to you know. And now mm-hmm. here's this pandemic. What mm-hmm. what are the impacts on the on the workers there and and everyday yes. life? And yes, I'm so happy that you asked me in terms of you're asking about the workers because most of the media coverage is talking about the businesses and the business owners, right? And it's true. The impact is really, really huge in terms of we are going to be facing a closure of the restaurants that we would usually, permanent closures of restaurants um, that where we would have uh, red egg parties for babies and weddings and things. And so they are uh, closing down, but they have resources, these, these business owners. What you learned through coming through Chinatown are issues of wage theft and horrible working conditions. And so now your question really uplifts in terms of the working, the impact of the work on the workers. And yeah, it's a loss of income. And for many of the workers, uh, they may not have a lot of the documentation that would provide them for being able to enroll in paid sick days or other things. And also, our workers, they may not, may, uh, not, not only work in the restaurants, but they would be caregivers or, or cleaning people's homes, right? And so these are other incomes that are no longer available. So our organization, the Chinese Progressive Association, has just been overwhelmed with helping our community understand how to do the unemployment forms. They're doing it by phone and then helping them navigate the computer system if they have access to a computer. And so it's been really really hard. And the other thing in terms of our workers, you uh, visited a single room occupancy facilities where you saw that uh, we have shared bathrooms, shared showers, shared cooking facilities for maybe two, two floors of, of working people, the working poor, and living in these small rooms. So in terms of the impact of this, in terms of protecting themselves in shelter, in place, that is not possible. The hallways are used for the, the, the young children use that to, do, to sit and play and do their homework. And the cooking and cleaning, all of that, it's just not, that is not available. I am living in a house where I, we have a kitchen and a stove and fresh air and the shower. And we're fortunate to have two bathrooms. And so... Vida he does, he uses one, and my husband and I use the other. That is, that's not possible in Chinatown right now. The wow. other thing that I want, the other thing that I want to to raise here is domestic violence. So I'm very concerned in terms of for the workers and the tension, uh, and living in these cramped quarters. When I lived in Chinatown, uh, I would hear all the time women being beat up by their husbands. It was just part of living in the apartment house. And so I I just am so fearful and so concerned uh, that these women uh, will not have access for the care and support that they need. 
Oh, this is something. So, Pam, tell us, what can we, the listening audience, do to support our family and friends there at yes, Chinese, yes, yes SCPA and, and the communities there? Well, there, you know, just one in terms of what happened to me uh, a, a few weeks ago in my local Starbucks is a man shoved me hard from the back and started yelling at me. And um, there was acts of kindness. This one man came up and intervened uh, and pulled me aside and, took, and um, kept, took me away from that person and provided safety for me. And the manager of the store came over and also helped me. And so it's individual acts of kindness and intervention uh, when people see this kind of activity that's happening a lot on the transit system, especially, and on the streets. The other is right now, the House of Representatives, a bill was introduced that is targeting um, China uh, and blaming China for the virus. And this is really a horrible it's like Trump has already built the fire and the House and Congress uh, could be throwing uh, gas on this fire. So if people could uh, be aware and tell their uh, local politicians that they are aware of a legislation that was introduced yesterday, that needs to not happen. It's expressing in terms of the People's Republic of China and them being responsible. We instead would appeal to our allies across the country to say these are not the kinds of policies that we need. We need you to step up and say hate crimes and violence must stop, and we will institute policies, policies that will stop that, as well as really work on uh, access to safety and resources for all. Um, including testing and medical supplies and for all uh, in, as an alternative to hateful resolutions and policies coming out of Congress. The third is to be able to express on social media to each other that an awareness of these conditions and that communities, uh, we should not racialize illnesses like this. It's been done in the past. People die when this is done, young children, little boys uh, standing at the counter, his face was slashed. A little boy, six years old, by someone. And, and this, these just, to be able to express outrage and calling out that enough is enough. Let's use this opportunity to act to make a better world possible through our individual actions and through policy. And not only locally, but globally. Thank you, Pam. Thank you so much. You know, I really love that. Let's let's use this as an opportunity to really make this world of just a better place. Our our Mother Earth deserves just you know that respect uh, for for our Mother Earth and her children and all of all of her the her inhabitants. So yes. with that, 
thank you so very much for sharing the stories and we will stay in touch with you and hopefully this will not be your last time and joining us mm-hmm. and keeping us updated on what is indeed going on on the ground and more how we can be helpful thank you so very much you're you've been on the ground with Pam Chali of the Chinese Progressive Association and Michelle Roberts This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. While the overwhelming coronavirus crisis here in the United States has not stopped Washington from continuing to ratchet up conflicts and attacks on other countries, After the U.S. Justice Department issued a so-called drug trafficking charge against Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro on March 26th, this week, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo released a so-called Democratic Transition Plan, demanding the ouster of Maduro in exchange for a five-person Council of State. And he threatens even more sanctions if Venezuela does not comply. Venezuelans, of course, dismissed this plan, saying that the Bolivarian Revolution will never be ruled by another country. Well, here to discuss this and other international news is on the grounds geopolitical analyst Professor Gerald Horn, author of more than three dozen books, including most recently, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, it seems that the, the crisis here at home is not slowing down the Trump administration's escapades abroad. What's your reaction to these these latest moves against Venezuela? Well, it should not come as any surprise. We all know that there are those in the United States who are lusting after Venezuelan's oil. But I must say that it's quite dangerous to send U.S. Navy vessels closer to Venezuelan shores, as has been reported, not least because I, and I'm sure others, are following this story of the USS Theodore Roosevelt, the ship with thousands of U.S. sailors aboard, otherwise known as the Big Stick, where the captain has just been relieved of his command because he says that because of the close quarters shared by these sailors that COVID-19 and the coronavirus are spreading like wildfire, and as a result, a number of these sailors have decamped to Guam, the Pacific island that's occupied by the U.S., and that has in turn incurred a sizable protest amongst the people of Guam. So I think that the Pentagon would be better off trying to consider how the Pentagon can carry out its mission, 
which obviously involves protecting U.S. imperialism, when it has to engage and deal with this virus, which is destabilizing the U.S. Navy, which would be important if, by any chance, the U.S. contemplated an invasion of Venezuela. Also this week, the National Lawyers Guild and several other legal organizations issued a letter basically protesting and demanding that the U.S. end these sanctions against Venezuela and Iran, calling them basically a crime against humanity, especially as these countries uh, continue to fight the COVID-19 virus in their own countries. And Iran has been particularly hard hit. Well, I watched the press conference held by the 45th U.S. president and a number of his Pentagon generals and admirals when he issued these threats towards Iran in particular, and Venezuela too, I might add. But not mentioned was another bit of news that hopefully will counteract what Mr. Trump was suggesting. What I mean is that Germany, Britain, and France, the so-called EU3, I guess the EU2 plus one, since Britain has withdrawn from the European Union, has managed to try to break the blockade against Iran by seeking to send substantial medical materiel to Iran, which, of course, is one of the major victims of COVID-19. Hopefully, this is a crack in the wall that has been constructed by the North Atlantic countries and will lead to further normalized relations between the European Union and Britain and Iran. Well, speaking of the COVID coronavirus crisis, let's switch to here in inside the United States. I'm interested in your perspective as an historian, because some are saying that there is no economic or historical parallel for what is happening to the U.S. right now. And they include the Great Depression in that. Well, the news might be it may be more significant, I'm afraid to say, and the Great Depression of the 1930s, right. combined with the so-called Black Death that racked Europe in the 1300s. And if that's not scary enough for you, consider what's happening domestically. That is to say that we all hear this line, which is not inaccurate, that COVID-19 does not discriminate, but we all know that in societies racked by races and class barriers, we should expect it to have disproportionate impact particularly on people of color. And we see that with regard to a city like Detroit, which is 85% black, which is a real hot spot with regard to the community spread of this disease. We also know that our community in particular has the kind of pre-existing conditions such as asthma, diabetes, lung and pulmonary issues that COVID-19 wreaks havoc upon people with those pre-existing conditions which disproportionately includes people from our community. And then there was a vignette that was recently reported in Nashville, Tennessee, where Meharry College of Medicine, which is in predominantly black Nashville and is a historically black institution, only recently has been giving tests for the virus, whereas Vanderbilt University across town in a more affluent neighborhood has been giving tests uh, for weeks now. And that kind of vignette represents the kind of class and race discrimination that is now wreaking havoc on our community. Uh, particularly when you consider testing, I mean, for example, 
you've seen these scenes on television, I'm sure, of drive-in testing, but what if you don't have a car, for example? Not to mention that those with income can always manage to cough up money to pay for a test. And then there's a question of who has health insurance and who does not have health insurance that will pay for a test. And then there's something that's really frightening. Already you have epidemiologists discussing seriously the rationing of health care. So I'm going to have to leave it on that note. But I will post my, my part two with you and post it on our patreon.com forward slash on the ground show page. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Thank you, thank you so much. The music we played this hour included End of the Line by Fotech, For Duke by Wallace Roney, jazz trumpeter who joined the ancestors this week at the age of 59, Umi Says by Yasin Bey, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam taking two more lines from Asada in a time like this. We must love each other and support each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>